Well, I was realizing recently that I haven't been using the old chat GPT as much as I used to be. And I was thinking, is, is something wrong with me or have I just, uh, have, have I just reached the, uh, the other side of the hill of excitement? You know, I, I think, I, uh, I think, I, I think it might be the second. I've just sort of maxed out the wonderment of it. Like, you know, uh, I, I, I was trying to put together some help it, uh, have it help me write some stuff. And I was realizing it would just be faster if I wrote it myself rather than uh, having it do something for me. And uh, it, do- it no longer, you know, my favorite use case was to have it go fetch a web page and summarize it. It stopped doing that a long time ago. They even turned off their, I love this explanation. This is like so, so like, you know, whatever internet, internet. I heard they, they had, they were doing some content with Bing and a plugin to fetch web pages, but they turned it off recently because it might give you the con the full contents of a web page that was behind a paywall, and it's like, isn't that what we're doing here? That's that's the internet, right? <laughs> it's not a feature of con- yeah, <laughs> yeah. Am I gonna so, have to go back to Google and just paste URLs into the Google search bar till one just pops up? The yeah. The, I mean, the I think I think I think the- of all all types of organizations, the AI ones that are basically taking and remixing content and uh, making profit off of it. They should be like, yeah, I mean, this is cool, right? No problem, but. So I think maybe if it still retrieved web pages, which was the initial use case that was so fantastic, you could just build up a log of like summarize these things for me. Oh, it was great, but it doesn't do that any longer. And, you know, I even tried to set up some sort of iOS shortcut where like you you uh, you you get the uh, uh, the article version of of the, the web page you're looking at and you copy it to the clipboard. And I think on iOS, there's a shortcut thing where you could send it to the chat GPT app to do it. But it just seems like a lot of a lot of work. Hey, quick check in though, you're still cannot use Google uh, Bard, right? You're still yeah. Bard I haven't actually checked from that. I guess I, I, I could use it when I was at DevOx UK in London because I mm-hmm. guess there they can use it. But uh, since since we're very protected here on the continent with our privacy and okay. rights and whatnot, uh, we don't we don't get any. That version I, is a little bit more free with uh, um, you know mm. getting to the different web pages. Although I will agree with you, like I I don't know maybe it is sort of like just, you just quickly adapt. It's like there's the initial uh, you know this is great and then use it a ton and then I was like I, I would agree I've used it a little less but I still just it's just like another tool though now it's like anytime I want to like either summarize things and I also use it to like I don't know if you will like edit I think it's maybe better at editing yeah, and, yeah. Uh, creation like just like yeah edit I can see that that's here. that's. That's true. That's true. I mean, I mean, the like, so I, I was thinking all this because I was using it yesterday and today for something. And it, it still is really great for like, I was I was doing some research on like, you know, digital transformation and banking, which is just like, you can imagine how exciting that is to read. And so, you know, I would go to all the McKinsey and the Baines and Deloitte's and the Ernst and Young's and just kind of like, cut and paste their thing and be like, summarize this for me just to see if there was anything interesting to read in there. Mm-hmm. And that was great. But I think it's yet another one of these situations where not yet another, but like everything is easier on a desktop or a laptop than on your phone. And once you're on the phone or the iPad, like it's, it gets to be annoying. Whereas like, yeah, just cutting and pasting between two windows is actually fine. I don't think I would even notice something, but it, uh, you know, that's not where I, I I guess is it, it's not oddly enough, but that's not really where I prefer to do most of my reading and, and consuming stuff on, on a laptop seems awkward but you know the the other thing that i really need is like i keep wanting to like you know put two like transcripts for hour-long podcasts in there but that's just too much information so maybe one day when i can do that i was even thinking you know what i should do 
is I can load up these podcasts into script, which will make a transcript. And then if I can just chunk it into batches, then I can feed that in there. And then I can ask it to summarize and help me write articles based on that. And then I thought like, or I could not do that. <laughs> well, it's almost like a, if this, then that kind of play thing list where you can be like, mm. here's a workflow and I'm going to string a bunch of AIs together to, you know, a bunch of MLs together to solve my, my problems. Um, just a matter of time for they kill that flow, but yeah. Yeah. I do yeah. think it, the whole thing will be a lot better when like, I think everyone's uh, implementing the co-pilot, you know, AI for every mm. application. So like, whether it's overcast or some other podcast player, like imagine just having a little button, you just like on the, on the episode, you just say, you know, summarize in whatever, summarize this in one paragraph. Like yeah. Then you would use it or the same thing. Like if it's in word or in your email system, it's like respond with this, right? It's we were, like, we were, we were using chorus, um, which somebody bought, I think zoom maybe. Um, and it, for, for our zoom calls and it was providing summaries and they were very good. And then we've switched to Gong um, for the same functionality for transcripts. And I don't, I haven't looked for it, but I haven't seen like an AI interface to it yet. But the transcripts are cool. So, yeah. 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 But I do think the whole thing, it's a broader question is always like, you know, there's so much a conversation about like safety and is it going to like end humanity? And it's like, when you use it, you feel like, no, I don't feel that way at all. Like, I don't even think this thing's like even close. Yeah. To I mean, it's not to say something could happen, but it's just, it's just like the disparity between like what people want to talk about. Like this is the end of the world versus like actually doing stuff just seems as huge as possible. Like I always come back to that IRS use case. It's like, okay, like has it figured out how to do all the back tax uh, process, all whatever 50 million mm-hmm back tax uh, returns and like spit it out and email everyone. Like, it seems like that's an, you know, $80 billion yeah. problem. Like I'm looking at, yeah, the, the IRS AI overmind with its human workers that just feed in feet. Uh, right. But it's just taxes. like, it's just like one of the things like when, when's it going to be able to do that? I don't think anyone at the IRS is like, Oh, we're done. We don't let's, let's give back the $80 billion. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> you know, but meanwhile, everyone's like humanity's going to be threatened and we're all going to die. And it's like, well, yeah, I, guess you, I guess we're all going to die with a lot of un, un uh, processed tax returns. That seems to be what's <laughs> going to happen. I think, I think I, 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 and then I have two more thoughts there that I've been thinking of. One is, uh, I, in a, in a unrelated thing, I was realizing I should try to read actual three dimensional books. Cause, cause I haven't found any books that I'm interested in reading and I've got all, not all, but I think there's something different about reading a book like that to see if it fixes my brain. And, and what you discover if you haven't read three dimensional books in a while is you can't tap on it and like, look something up and like, see, see <laughs> what it your is. your phone next to you and then you end up getting distracted by your I, phone. Exactly. And this one, you know, I forget what listener in what year recommended it, but it's called uh, Against Purity. And, uh, it, you know, it had a good promise. I don't really know where it's going in the first two chapters, but that's fine. But here's a good workflow. Like, you know, it's very academic. Well, I don't know if it's very academic, but it's more academic than like, you know, Reddit or whatever. And so like you'll be reading something and it's using all these fancy academic words. But nowadays you can use a tool chain where you point your iPhone at it and select the text and copy that text and then go over to the chat GPT app and be like, explain this to me. And that's actually really nice, right? And mm-hmm. the point there being that, you know, and I guess this does sound arrogant, but like, I feel like if you're an expert at something, it's not very helpful, right? Like I spent a lot of time initially having it summarize articles that I wrote and being kind of like, mm, that's actually not what's going on there. 
right? And because and, <laughs> well, that, and if, that, that's what I worry about when you when you hand it something to summarize, it's going to lose track of like the subtleties that of you're mm-hmm. making. It's like this totally, like, you know, a hundred other articles on the subject that I've written, and, it, Whereas, and then you know. Yeah. For, for example, if you go to the news stack and you're like, there is something in this article that's interesting, but I don't want to take the time to read it. And you ask it to summarize it. It's not interesting. Don't at ask all. it to summarize right. it. Tell it to show you the novel ideas. Try yeah, that. that's a good. Yeah, yeah. So so, so there's that. But then I, the, the other thing I was thinking is like there must I was reading. Uh, I think he's, he's a professor and he, he's ongoing been writing about like actually using. Uh, you know, AI stuff in the classroom, like assigning his students to do it rather than being fearful of it. And he was having some, he he called it the uh, the oncoming AI apocalypse in the fall, or I don't think he used words like that, but he had a good point that like, all right, school's out for summer, la la la. And uh, when people come back, this is going to be a real thing that everyone is going to have to deal with uh, in school. And he went on to talk and I was thinking like, oh yeah, I should figure out, We Kim and I did the calculations. I think our kids have six weeks off for summer, which is crazy. Yeah. But like, uh, we should come up with like a curriculum of like, here, here's how, let's learn how to use AI for school in, in, in a good way. But I don't really know, <laughs> but the one, European how much time I have to spend on gonna that. Students are going to be kept out of the, the loop. That's right. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. there actually was, I think, I forget, I think this is coming up in uh, next fall, but there's, there's uh, in the Netherlands... I think this is final. I don't remember reading the article that closely. I hadn't had too much coffee, but I think there, there's like a ban on cell phones and also watches any digital device in the classroom mm-hmm. for for students. Because as you know, the, uh, the the calculator and the abacus destroyed society. Once once you write a tool that helps you do something that, and really what happened with the calculator is is once people figured out you could turn it upside down and spell boobs civilization ended like it was a big distraction they got the intellectual and the the moral uproar uproar there well i will say that one thing i I do still love that chat gpt and maybe it's just my level of uh the programming i'm doing it's like it is phenomenal at like you know write a funk write a method Mm. if you're trying to do a little programming uh like a little python project a little like that's true i think it's like because what's great about it is like you can then take the code and then either compile it or run it and you kind of see what happens right and then you either see the error and you can have it fix it or you kind of learn you're like oh it did this wrong and then you learn it you're like oh and i, I just that just that whole well, what, what do you use overflow the- um you don't have to go to stack overflow anymore. that whole little cycle of like uh, like write write the stub for me or like write the logic do it wrong let me learn something or change something or like change the requirement rewrite it it's i mean that mm-hmm. flow is awesome i love it i yeah. i think it's i don't think there's any way to program ever again um, you know, you know, know th- this, yeah. this reminds me of, of, of my, my other, my final fear around this is like, you remember, you remember, uh, back in school, maybe this never happened to you two, but like, uh, uh, there were, there were lots of clever teachers and, and, uh, well, there were some, and you would say like, this is boring. And they would say, this is not boring. You're boring. Right. Like, you know, like that, that kind of attitude. And maybe, maybe the problem is that chat GPT is actually pretty awesome and not boring. It's just, I've become boring. I, have, I haven't come up with, if I can't come up with a way to be excited about it, I'm not working on enough content. I need to be out, have, I get some data and have it output some SVGs that I can paste into PowerPoint for a cool chart or, or something like that. Uh, so we'll see. But I think, I think if, if, if any listener, anyone knows like uh, an interesting curriculum for a 13 and a nine year old, I think the two and a half year old, the three and a half year old is too young, but it would be fun to like, you know, be like, here's here's a way that you can use chat GPT to help you out with your school stuff that isn't cheating. 
uh, that, that would be, be fun to look over. Well, speaking of, uh, nothing related to that, I'm, I'm not really <laughs> sure what a segue would be. Speaking of cheaters, you know, what would have been, what would have been a great use of chat GPT, if it could ingest things would have been to collect the last two weeks, including the novel that I wrote, trying to figure this stuff out. Like what the deal with the, uh, the, the Red Hat Enterprise Linux relicensing hoopla is lots of articles are written and i think i think if you could have added a corpus of like lots of information and you could have asked it questions like what are people freaking out about it would have been fascinating to see what it came back with and um i'm not going to waste our time by verifying my <laughs> my understanding well, you don't you don't want to re- recap the 70 70 uh, post uh chat I think, that we I had think- yeah, Matt Ray and I had almost a hundred messages back and forth that weren't just smiles and thumbs, uh, try, trying to sort through this. And I think I smiles and thumbs. <laughs> I do think I, mean, I think we can come at it from a more like I think there's like a million articles to summarize it. And I think the short answer is that like we all get it. Rel source code is not going to be easily available to exactly um, people. That's all you got to know. In, you know, if you will, repackaging. I'm going to try to choose my words that are not loaded because there's a lot of stuff in there. But I think the more meta conversation is this, like, I just think it is around, I guess, this idea of just sort of like, it's sort of like renegotiating the value chain of what's going mm. on. I think that's just kind of what's happened here. It's sort of like at a highest level, I just think it sort of comes down to like, what is Red Hat's business? Red Hat's business is about selling support and long-term support two customers that want to run certain versions of Linux. So what do they do is they essentially, you know, take the patches, if you will, integrate them into the downstream. And then for the, I don't know, since for a long time, they have always made all of that source code available, which it still will be, but they've made it, if you will, very easy to repackage for most of the history of Red Hat, right? Uh And so the change here now is, I think, if you just say it more succinctly, is that Red Hat has now said it's like, hey, the value we're providing is very high and we're not capturing enough value. We're not capturing enough profit around that or value. Right. And they're saying, mm-hmm. so they're sort of changing the term saying that like, listen, we're doing all of this work and we believe we should capture more of the value. And therefore we're going to make it harder for you to repackage rel right. Going forward. Yep. And not surprisingly, because <laughs> this is back to the defaults lifestyle, Right. Not surprisingly, when you change the defaults or change the equation, uh, a whole nother group of people, in this case, the community, are not going to be happy about it now. Uh, and I think that's sort of like where we're left. It was sort of like, okay, like they're very unhappy about it. And, and I think it comes across as it's being done like kind of like unilaterally, right? I think that's the other aspect, right? It's just sort of like that change gets made and it really upsets people. But it seems very predictable on both sides, right? That like mm-hmm. you make this change, people are going to be really upset. Um, so I don't know, Matt, looks like I can just see Matt, you've, you've got, you've got things to say, go ahead. Oh, well, I mean, yes, I, I, since Kote and I had our, our thread of, of explanation where we kind of went back and forth and explained, you know, who's, who's getting left out and you know, how, how feathers are being ruffled. Um, I've, I've been reading some of Red Hat's own documentation about CentOS stream and they're really dismissive of their own product. It's, it's weird. Um, you know, when, when you use words like undifferentiated security patches, it doesn't leave the warm feeling like this is something you would ever want to use. Um, so they're even, even with the, the product that they're like, Oh, this is the replacement for what you used to do. You're our testing grounds. They're like that testing grounds. 
it's not safe. Anything could happen there. We could break it at any second. You know, why would you ever use that viral? And it's like, you're not leaving that community of, of users and testers who are like, I need, I need a rel image to do my work and I don't want to go through your hoops. I'll just use CentOS and know it's okay. They don't leave us feeling good about this at all. But, uh, Maybe that's Red Hat's intention is they don't want anyone to feel good except for themselves. <laughs> I think, I think, I don't, this is where I think we should get into like, like what, because I think there's a bunch of talk in the software defined talk Slack, which anyone can join, go to software defined talk.com. And I, I don't know, there's like different like theories about the motivation. Like what is the motive? Like one, one theory was like, well, you know, they were bought by IBM and the IBM overlord said, you have to make more money and you have to make this change. Like, I really don't believe that. I'm like, I don't know, having spent some time at IBM and others like, I don't think the IBM executives are engaged at this level. Sure, I'm sure they told Red Hat, like, we would like you to make this amount of money. But beyond that, I think it's inside Red Hat is deciding to do this. But, like, ultimately, there, there has to be some motivation. Is the motivation that, that they believe that, I don't know, could, do you believe that the motivation was driven by them believing that this will drive more revenue? Is that their motivation? Well, I, I, don't, <clears throat> I don't know enough about the revenue on the table, so to speak. Like, like uh, I didn't go look up market shares and stuff like that. Uh, but like, yeah, I, I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm not to avoid answering your question, but I think, I think there's almost, uh, I don't know, maybe someone retired or something, but there's almost like, I think maybe we're in this, like the end of free era where like all this free stuff we're used to, like people just aren't up with that nonsense anymore. And I, and I think I say it that way because maybe the position is like, I don't know. In, with, in moves like this, it's either you do something like this, either because, yeah, you want to make more money, right? And and even that phrase, you want to make more money, is too pejorative. It's like you want to run a business, <laughs> is 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 yeah, like why you fair. do it. Mm-hmm. Or there's usually like some sort of irrational emotional grudge going on, right? Like you know, like all of a sudden you're going to end up with uh, you know a cage match with someone, like some stupid shit like that, right? And so like. I don't know. It doesn't seem like there's weird emotional grudge stuff going on. Like some of the writing is like, uh, we don't think people are contributing. And, you know, our our friend of the podcast, Adam Jacobs, had a good rephrasing of it that was just like, you know, we want people to contribute. I, I'm bastardizing, as they say, uh, his, his summary there. But like, I kind of think, I don't know, I don't know Red Hat people at all, but I almost feel like they wouldn't care. <laughs> right? Like, but, yeah. Like they haven't. They haven't cared all these decades right. Right, or all, all these years. And, you know, I don't know IBM well enough, but what you and uh, whoever else was saying, like, I think the IBM people probably also don't care as far as emotional grudge wise. And so, like, it kind of goes back to like, yeah, we got a business to run here and like more money would be cool. And so, okay. like. On like, to that point, Dale, let me. So, Mike McGrath, I think we should just take like Mike McGrath is the person that like wrote the blog post, right? And they're so not going to take it at face value. That would yeah, be crazy. I think we should just say, and I think, I think there is a twinge of emotion in his second blog post. I'm just going to read it. So, I'm just so one yeah, yeah. one thing that's in bold. This is not my emphasis added for once. I'm just mm-hmm. going to read it, but this is literally something in bold. He says, quote, Simply rebuilding code without adding value or changing it in any way represents a real threat to open source companies everywhere. This is a real threat to open source and one that has the potential to revert open source back into a hobbyist and hackers only activity, end quote. And I'm like, that 
that feels like it has a lot of that's doing a lot of work, right? I was like, I yeah. don't really feel like this is a threat to open source. Like, and, and so, so, so this this does bring up something I, I I've only like idly thought about, unlike all my other serious strenuous thinking, uh, where where I don't there was even maybe only Matt Assay like referenced this, but like the obvious comparison is like AWS and Mongo and Elasticsearch and all that, where like the things here, the tables here are kind of reversed in yep. those situations where it's like, instead of it being big, as people like to say, purple hat, ha ha, that's great colors. But like, you know, instead of it being big old IBM and red hat, you know, doing the thing now, you got the the Mongos and the little people who are being like, not preyed on. And, or and whatever. a little old but, Oracle. Right, right. And so, and so, so while everyone is like, that's kind of weird to introduce this new type of licensing and whatever, they're also, it's sort of understandable that they, you know, to, to the point of what you're saying, that if if these smaller open source companies, if someone like AWS can just come in and, and clone their stuff, they can pretty easily gobble up their market. And you're kind of left thinking like, ooh, that that's not, wasn't what's supposed to happen in the open source world. Right. So there is a comparison kind of, of like, yeah, like, even though they're the big one, like you could, I mean, I can see a case where like, yeah, you're just like, this isn't cool. And so we're going to stop doing it. Now. I think, I think what I, what I had in my mind when I was going over the, like the little joke about that someone retire is like, yeah, but that's like always been like, like what's changed since, since whenever. And so there, there's something, there's some event that was like, all right, let's do it, right? Like, let's, well, let's actually thing, do it this time. They one must have lost quote. something to Oracle. <laughs> I have to say one more quote, and I think this is real short, but it says, you know, in that same post, this quote, ultimately, we do not find value in a rel rebuild, and we are not under any obligation to make things easier for rebuilders. This is our yeah. call to make, end quote. And it's like, that part, I think, is factually correct. I'm like, like no, I shouldn't say that. I, I I wanted to say it. I'm not saying it's factually correct. I'm saying like they are free to make that decision. I guess there'll sure, be right. some some uh, maybe legal wrangling about like the open source like licensing. I don't know. I we'll have to leave that part to the lawyers. But I think uh, this part is like, and I think if they just left it at that, it's like I don't know. I mean, to me, it's it's sort of like they the only reason to do this is to. If, to your point, Cote, is that you as Rel and Red Hat feels like this advances their business in some way, right? Because otherwise, like, why go? Why take all of the PR hit? Why take you know, just all right. of the frustration to do it? So I understand that they want to do it, but I think then you know, like I already read that quote is like to say it's a threat to open source and all this other stuff. I think for a real stretch. Like that's where you're yeah. getting way too far out on your limbs, and it's like you know, because ultimately the community here will decide. Um, cause it sounds like there's been a lot of posts and like, you know, lots of stuff that we probably won't go into. Like, it looks like there will be some way for the, the, re- I don't know what the right word is. The rebuilders. So that's yeah, the rebuilders. Sure. Not, uh, I don't want to like, I think it's fine. I think we all know what we're what they're doing, but there'll be some way that they will recreate it. It looks like and they'll have to work out exactly how, but there's lots of people figuring that out. And so at the end of this, I think we're just going to get like, yes, you made it harder for the rebuilders, but, they but still did it. yes, it still <laughs> yes. So did anyone win anything? And then the kind of the business question would be like, were any of the people that ultimately going to use the the other distributions, the rebuilt distributions, were they going to buy, you know, Rel anyway? I, was yeah, like, I always yeah. feel like probably not in yeah, a significant yeah. business yeah. way to impact your business, but 
you know, so it just becomes one of those things like you did all of this, but I'm not sure you're going to get. What yeah, you're I think this is one of those deals where they thought they were going to get a better outcome. And from what I've read, so so Rocky Linux pointed out that if they use RHEL in the cloud, they get source. So all they have to do is go to, you know, AWS, spin up a RHEL instance, download the the source, and you know they're free. That that should be covered under the license. That seems to be like. You know, Red Hat doesn't really have a, I mean, unless Red Hat wants to kill the cloud business, um, they're probably, that, that loophole is there, right? And, you know, they're using, they, they have the image so that they are a customer of Red Hat. So they're allowed to download the source. Um, that loophole seems pretty cut and dry to me. And so at the end of this, you end up with like, oh, everyone figured out the new workflow. Uh, you, you know, had a two week hiccup of, you know, Alma and, and Oracle and others, you know, having to deal with this. And you just burned everyone who thought like, you know, oh, whatever you were doing with CentOS, you know, we're over that. But now you have, you know, people like Jeff Gearling who are like, I'm done. I'm not testing my code on RHEL anymore. I'm not, you know, you have lots of people who are like, I'm not going to go out of my way to accommodate Red Hat anymore if they're going to do this. And I, I think, you know, in exchange for bad will, they got nothing. Right. And I think what you're getting at here is I think the, ultimately the community response, right, is going to be the collective thing. And I think, you know, you, Kote, you alluded to it before. We were kind of like Reddit went through something similar. And it's sort of like you just never know what you spawn. I think in this case, if you're at Red Hat, it's sort of like you just believe the status quo will prevail. It's like this will flare up. You know, there'll be some noise about it and it will go away. That's definitely possible. You know, as we always talk about here, the default lifestyle, you know, is very powerful. Now, having said that, you know, because I I can't help, and this is like kind of being a little bit older, I guess, it's like to think back of like Solaris and Sun, right? At the time, it's like very dismissive, kind of different situation, but very dismissive of Linux in general. It was sort of like a toy, a hobbyist thing. It's not for real applications and things like that. But over time, that community, right? I mean, even going back to like when I first saw Red Hat was like a book in a bookstore with a big DVD CD in the back, right? It was just like, uh-huh. it's just such a different world, even thinking about it now. Um, but you just never know when the seeds of, you know, something new are planted. And so out of this, maybe there is some kind of like enterprise Linux, you know, foundation or collective that people are like, no, no, like we're going to take this forward. We're going to find some way to have some standard and we're going to have some way of like, identifying which patches are back ported and these other distributions will begin to pick it up. So you just never know if like that gets kicked off and sort of like all of this, right. This was the moment where it all happened. Whereas like, you know, when, you know, Scott McNeely and they didn't want to like release Solaris X86 and was open source for like a week and then it wasn't. And then people were like, you know, at the time, the Sun people, I mean, I've worked there, I guess, to some degree, uh, you know, would say like, well, Solaris is like so much better than Linux. Like you would never trust anything to Linux. But it's like, ah, well, you know, time showed that like, I don't know, Linux got pretty good. So, you know, time can show you, I don't know if it's Rocky Linux or any of the things you were just mentioning, Matt. It's like, you know, you know, the community can decide like we don't need you anymore. Like, and it can move on pretty fast in a way that like really is uh, surprising. So I don't know. I don't know. Like, that's not going to affect next quarter's revenue. That's not going to affect next year's revenue. But like, I don't know. Five years from now, it'll be interesting to see where Rel is at relative to the overall marketplace. Well, Linux. I think Red Hat has the distinct advantage that like SUSE and, and Canonical have never really been able to ca- capitalize on any of this. <laughs> <laughs> or at least it feels that way. Like they don't really, I mean, Canonical, you know, clearly won the cloud market with, with their whole, you know, offering Ubuntu images at, at no cost. 
you know, no like surcharge. Um, whereas Red Hat was always like the same price as Windows instances. So it was always a lot more. And, you know, thus Canonical won a lot of the cloud workloads. Um, but like I haven't really seen enterprise traction. You know, I haven't seen you know, anybody except Oracle. No, you're kind of really getting the status yeah. quo. Like, I think you're just making the broader point. The yeah, 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 yeah. It's very, it, it could status just Status quo remains and, and yeah. people are continue to be distrustful and, I, and, and less happy with Red Hat. Absolutely. And I think Way we could go. just make the same argument. Like Twitter, there are plenty of alternatives now. Blue Sky, we've got an account there. Mastodon, we've got an account there. There's this new thing that's come out this week, Threads. And... They're all like pretty feet. They're pretty comparable when you get over there with the features, but like no one, like when I say no one, I just mean like the vast majority of people have not moved. So you kind of get over there and it's just like a few people, you know, right. You know what I mean? It's like the vast majority of people aren't reading 600 posts a day. Yeah. And then, well, but it just seems like no matter what, then you're like, well, is this the moment you're like, okay, now, now it's throttled down. Right. And it's like, is this the moment? But like, you know, you're right. Like no one's the the, the settling of the status quo means there's no growth. There's no like changing of the guard. And so like nobody looking at Twitter is like, you know what? In a year, they're going to be bigger than today. Yeah, I know. I think that, I think that's true. And, and, that, and, and, or yes. there isn't any there. And the thing, same thing with Reddit. Like there seemed to be that massive, you know, all the outages or not outages, the, the going dark kind of thing. But this week it seems, I don't use Reddit that much. So I'm not a great like example, but it's, it seems like things are back to normal. And I, there is an alternative to Reddit, which name just escapes me. But like, I don't, you know, even the people yeah. that have the alternative are sort of like, ah, we're not really ready for that yet. So I don't know. Is it get it, ready? It, it's kind of working. I don't know. It, it's it's sort of like status quo is kind of winning here. I, yeah. I mean, I, I think I think the main thing is like uh, not the main thing, but I think an important like lesson learned is that in general, you just you don't fuck around with the norms of an established community, whether that's like, <laughs> you know, the APIs you can access for free. It's OK to do this like. If there's like things that people have been normally doing in the community for like 10 years and like no matter how small it is, part of it depends on it. Like unless there's a super good reason, like unless your company is about to like fail or something, right, then really you can't mess around with it because it's going to be like in, in, in the in the least bad scenario, it's just like a huge distraction. Uh, and when you could be doing something else, whereas in like whereas in the baddest bad scenario <laughs> you have you have like like the twitter thing where it's just like wow i don't know how you fucked that up right like mm-hmm. all you had to do was instead hey how about we think about new things to do that would make this better instead of like messing around with the existing stuff and changing it right, right. so it's like layering on which is usually a bad phrase in technology but like adding on new things and trying to do new things is usually where you have find more success because you uh you don't kill the cash cow or the golden goose or whatever or mess with it right now you could also say in contrast when you rename your company to meta and try to start a whole metaverse that doesn't go well but (laughs) the point being is that didn't tank the original goose cow right like you you create a whole different area where you can build on the the assets that you have the strategic assets that you have but you're not like fucking with what works and so like especially like i think you know, in the open source world and like, uh, like all that stuff, like if you've got a really successful thing, like don't mess with it unless, you know, for example, if you were Solaris, right. But that, that's, you know, that, that there's always exceptions to these things. 
but like, just be careful when you mess around with the norms of stuff. And it's probably better just to do something new uh, in, instead of worrying about it. Well, we shall see. It'll be fun, fun to watch uh, as it goes. And so uh, in this special edition of Software Defined Talk, yeah, Matt Ray unfortunately had to go. But Cote, you and I will stay together for the next most important Forever. Segment. Forever. That's right. <laughs> Where we can uh, dive in and uh, talk. I think we, we need to do a little DevOps vibe check, uh, Cote. I know this is like uh, in the show notes here for everyone uh, following along. Uh, Cote wrote the longest show note ever, I think. It's like... I. <laughs> It's like an entire blog post. I was like, you know, I, I, I only, I only wrote this because I was like, finally, Brandon is going to be so proud that I prepared. I was, I, I was. So why don't, uh, so I'll, here I'll set it up for you and just say uh-huh. it's like I, I feel like over the past, you know, month, maybe it's just me sort of just picking out, like even kind of using, uh, you know, the Gen Z slang, the vibe check. It's like it does feel like a lot of the, I don't know, the DevOps luminaries, the people that we often associate DevOps with have kind of been, I don't know, expressing like some discontent about like where we're at. And I think, uh, you know, you heard Matt's interview with Adam Jacob and, uh, and he's sort of like, let's just call that his broad uh, view of second wave DevOps. He's got a whole new company, Systems Initiative. Go back, listen to the episode if you want to hear more about that. It's kind of a, a fresh take on it, but I think he outlines uh, what he was thinking. And then we also had uh, Kelsey, not directly related to DevOps, but I'm going to lump this in anyway. You know, Kelsey Hightower uh, retired from Google, so congratulations to him. So, and he on a recent podcast uh, over at the Changelog, which I'll link, he had some thoughts about DevOps as well. Sort of like, you know, maybe it's not delivering after 10 years. We're not where we want to be. And I just think there's sort of just been this, and I think you've written a lot about this, Cote, like the, you know, a lot of discussions around platform engineering. There's been a lot of like just questioning, like, are we making progress are we still getting to the point? Are we realizing these benefits that we wanted 10 years ago? And I think there's some questioning of it, which is pretty good. So I don't know. What is your thoughts around uh, the, so, so maybe the vibe is a little bit more uh, uh, introspective. And it's also like, I don't know. I, I just would say it this way. DevOps, are we still going the right way? That's what I feel like the vibe is right now. How does, how does that uh, feel to you, Kote? Is that where you're, well, you're well, at? Well, after listening to the, well, did I actually listen to it? That's funny. I think I only listened to like a third of it. And then I made myself go back and listen to the rest of it, that the, the, the interview that Matt Ray had with, with Adam, you know, I think, and then some other stuff, you know, basically there was, there was the, uh, the idea in there that like, we haven't really achieved the goal of the old, uh, the old Spock and Scotty thing, right. Where we've got the, the developers working with the, with the operations people, or just basically, I mean, it was all, it's, it was funny hearing him go over it because he's like, oh, you know, like p- people can't deploy multiple times a day. And I was thinking like a day. How about like a month? Right. Like, <laughs> like ne- never mind. Yeah, like, and I think this is both what Kelsey and Adam hit on. And I think it's it's interesting just to use the phrase automation. Right. It's sort of like they both kind of key in on most of the stuff today is not nearly as automated as we would have thought 10 years ago. Like it's right. better. It's definitely better than it was, right? I think, so let's give the community credit where credit is due. It's not like nothing's been done. You know, like the whole idea of like, it takes eight months to get a server racked and stat. I mean, there's lots of stuff that is a lot better, right? Now, having said that, I think they both kind of expressed the like, yeah, just forget about the, the culture thing. It's just like, not nearly as much stuff is automated and it doesn't seem like it's getting automated any faster. You know, we're at mm. some ceiling. I, I think that's where you were going. Yeah, yeah. And and so I tried to gather together as many charts as I could and surveys and stuff about like what the uh, deployment frequencies are. And 
it'd be responsible if I went and looked at them. Uh, but I, I think the way I summarized it in my mind was like, I don't know, it's like between a month and six months, like that, depending on what survey you look at, that people like on average or whatever, that if you ask people in surveys, like it's about monthly that people can deploy if, if not longer. Now, you know, my usual uh, footnotes on all of this is like, well, what I really want to do is look at uh, every sur- survey. I want to cut all the people who work at tech companies out of these surveys because who gives a fuck, right? Like that does, that's not the real world. And so like if you go look at actual, you know, governments, banks, yeah, pharmaceutical sample, companies. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A, a more representative sample of like say enterprise IT would be a yeah, lot smaller than like everybody. Uh-huh. And so I don't have that information. I I, I have no idea. But I, I would assume it's not as great as, as what they're doing at like Twitter. Well, that's a bad example. At, you know, like 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 Google yeah, or whatever, no, right? Scalers, the cloud native, the companies that are like, yeah, the biggest, co- like the biggest right. internet companies are always going to be doing it. Much. And like and, and, a great example, they, they record multiple times a day, right? Very few people are doing that. Right. And so, so to, to uh, uh, fall off the, the chart in the Excel spread, spreadsheet into Word, into the land of anecdote, right? Like <laughs> you, you encounter this as well. And, and there's, there's a huge selection bias to the people that we're talking with, right? The people that we talk with who are trying to like say, here's, you should be doing things in this new way and using these new products that are cloudy things to make things run better. They're interested because things are not running better, right? So like they're, they're the ones who uh, uh, are not these optimal state of people. Maybe they're off somewhere. But it seems like, you know, over the years, when you talk with people at these regular large enterprises, that they need a lot of help, right? Like they, they, they're not quite at this ideal stage that uh, uh, was being dreamed of way back when. And so, you know, whatever, like I look at all, you look at all these surveys, you kind of have those anecdotes. And it does raise the question of like, I mean, there's two ways of asking the question. One is like, well, like, how come we didn't get to like, we can deploy, everyone can, it's normal to deploy weekly, at least, if not daily. You know, you could ask why that didn't happen. You could also ask like, well, do we need to, (laughs) right? Like, like maybe the fact, not the fact, but maybe the sense we have that people can't deploy that frequently. uh, And yet the world hasn't fallen apart due to that is means we didn't need to in the first place. And it was cool. Right. Which is, that's another like Avenue to go down is like, ah, well maybe actually my notion that we should throw tech companies out of the survey base is the opposite. In fact, we should only be caring about what these tech companies do and not worry so much on, on the other hand. Now you also brought up a point. I think that's good is it's easy to uh, uh, forget how much improvement there has been, how how much uh, better things can be. Uh, versus way back when, when things were, it seemed like most every organization shipped on an annual basis, even even ones in the tech world that right. So like one out. major release and a couple minor, uh, right, right, and changes. and so that's I mean that's definitely an improvement. But I think I think the other the, you know there's two more troubling things that what well, troubling two more confounding things that that I talk about all the time is like one, uh, yeah, there there is like like this disconcerting thing of like why platform engineering as a phrase exists versus just like calling it DevOps, (laughs) right? Like now it would be a natural evolution of DevOps, especially if you go back and kind of like look at the original like thinking to say that like everything that platform engineering is talking about is like the direction that DevOps 
it's kind of like its birthright to evolve into that, right? It, it'd almost be like uh, if if like agile software development like like took a nap for for several years, and then all of a sudden someone came up and they were like, "I've got this crazy new idea called fluid coding." <laughs> and what what we're gonna do? And they talked and talked, and you're like, wait, isn't that agile software development? They were like, never heard of it. I, I don't know what you're talking about. Moving on, right? So like, obviously, you would evolve the concepts, and like, you know, in in the original DevOps world, the idea of an internal development portal, like that, didn't catch on as a big thing. I mean, there was like, uh, I think part of I forget, I always forget. I want to call it clams instead of calms, but like, I think learning is in there, and you could imply from learning that you would have an, int- an internal developer portal. And then there's also, you know, you could kind of imply all this stuff right. out. And then of course you have backstage now, right? People talk about that, right? That's another Yeah, one. yeah. And people used to talk about information radiators, another concept from the agile world that you would have dashboards to like list your project status. So, you know, that kind of thing. And IDP is like, would make sense in the DevOps world, but it, it, it wasn't there, you know, or it didn't end up there. It ended up in the platform engineering thing. So you look at that, and you're kind of like, how did this happen, right? Like someone, someone didn't have a stronghold on the ball, and someone else grabbed it and started running with it, and and then here we are with platform engineering, right? Which is weird, uh, and and so like that's something strange in the DevOps world. And then uh, I mean, I think I think the other thing, you know, my old my old hobby horse is like, yeah. And then we got this uh, we got this crazy Kubernetes thing here, where uh, we just spent several years dealing with that right i think the 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 biggest question there is you know and this is i wish this is the question they asked kelsey on that podcast or maybe one day he'll answer it sort of like you know i think he's the one that says it's a you know i think he famously said it's a platform for building platforms right and i think the the natural follow-up to that question is like well where are the platforms you know what i mean and i don't mean that like in like i know there are many places where their kubernetes is deployed but this idea that there is a platform that has sort of sufficiently encapsulated most of the complexity that um, you know is contained within it um, that really developers can easily access, like that still feels like it hasn't gotten there, right? Like that's the mm. thing that you know we fundamentally miss. And I, you know, I know he, I think, just recently posted that he was like redoing Kubernetes the hard way, and it's like so many people I know that have have, have aspired to like I'm, I'm going to do that, I'm going to learn that, and it's like maybe, sometimes I think maybe that's the problem, like. In like in college, like you take a compiler's class because you kind of think it's intellectually interesting and maybe it's kind of useful to know what's going on. But then like for most of us, you never write a compiler again. You know, I, I'm not doing like mm. compilers the hard way. Or like, you know, I know some people like to re back to our Linux thing. Like uh, some people want to like rebuild the entire Linux operating system because it helps them understand. But most of us like, I just like, just grab a container. You know what I mean? And it's sort of like, there's this level of encapsulation and like, hardened platforms where it's like, no, that's what people want to like work on. Right. And, you know, and just telling people like they haven't gotten it right. Or they haven't done like, you need to go learn the tool better or like, you know, you need to change your culture. I mean, the other way to say that back is as sort of like the end user is like, no, no, you need to like, give me something better. Right. Like I want to fundamentally yeah. rethink this. And I think to make this like more something that I think many of us in large corporations kind of re- can relate to is like content management systems are like this, right? Like, like you've probably been on the internet and you probably logged into a website that's publicly available, something you own or Wikipedia. And like, you can make a change in like minutes, right? You can like click edit, change it, save it. Sometimes you have to get approval, but it's done. So many enterprise content management systems, like 
you know, like the training to use them will be like days, right? You have to do like five modules. You have to go to a class. You have to like, there's an incredibly long approval cycle. You have to understand if you're given responsibility. And, you know, a lot of times what happens is intranets and, you know, internal websites, they get like way out of date. And it's like, sometimes I always just think like, has anyone like taken the time, right? To be like, what does it take to keep this thing up to date? Not like, did we deploy the platform correctly? It's like, is the platform like conducive to making edits? Or is it just better to be like, I don't know, the website's broken. Here's the information you need to know. I'll just send you the presentation. Or I posted it internally on some share that's really easy for me to access. And I think, you know, there's like a fundamental kind of, you know, shift that has to go on there. And I think that's sort of like something to always think about. This is like, you know, yes, you know, and Kelsey made this point, like, yes, we should collaborate more, but that's not new, right? That's not a new idea. And just telling people they need to collaborate more, you know, without providing them maybe tools that really make it a lot simpler or more, you know, levels of encapsulation that are easy to work with, like you're probably missing the point a little bit. What are your thoughts? Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, and I think, I think that brings up another, another thing is like, uh, yeah, like, like we should probably just take a decade to like make what we have work better (laughs) instead of like just coming up with, with, with a, a brand new thing over and over again. This is very, very uh, thing that a mature person in the IT industry says, right? Like, what? Why do I have to rewrite something? And you know, and go, I, I go back and forth all the time on the good versus bad of that. But that is that is another, you know, it, it it's 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 almost like you know, it's it's like a very legacy comp thing to think about. Is like, yeah, we already got all this stuff, and like, really, we just need to configure it well, and maybe apply the upgrade, and it'll be fine, right? Instead of using this this older stuff, we don't have to like revolutionize the way we think about things um which is sometimes the case and sometimes not but it it does seem like uh with with the desire to come up with like new movements and and new technologies and categories which working at vendors we're very familiar with because that's what we end up wanting to do a lot like you, you kind of just lose sight of like yeah or or like let's just make this run better right and right. and then and then that means that you have the whole analyst community and the whole thought leadership community and the whole vendor community, you know, and by that, I mean, cloud people as well, like trying to come up with like a new revolutionary thing. And I think like one, one of the things that I don't know, you can't really talk about DevOps is some like one single thing, but there is, there is very much. So the notion has been built up that like, the uh it's the culture that matters and the way that people work and the processes and at some point you know i think i think now like it's probably worth thinking about well what if you can't change the organization or the culture right which probably probably yourself but i've definitely encountered over the past i don't know 8 10 15 years like it's kind of been the same like you've got to like change the culture and the organization like over and over and over again. Right. Like you can go all the way back to um, I think extreme programming was published in 1999 and that has the, basically the, the, the write up of what most people would say you should aspire to nowadays is we've got one room and we've got like eight people and uh, they pair program and there's a product manager and there's also like an actual voice of a customer, if not the customer there. And uh, we just release the software every week because we've automated everything and we have automated tests so we can operate that quickly. And uh, that's how we operate. And like, I haven't done this, but it might be fun to go back and find that description in the XP book 
and like put it up on a slide and say like, this is what we're all going for, right? Like, you know, we're progressing, we're doing it. And then, you know, you click and there's a transition that says published in 1999. And it's kind of like, I don't, I I mean, never mind even DevOps, like what's, what have we been doing all this time? And again, it goes back to what I was saying is like, well, maybe that goal isn't needed, right? Like maybe, you know, the IRS doesn't need this. Like th- th- it would be fine if they deployed every six months I mean, or, or whatever, right? Like, and so it does like, I think, I think there is, it's worth thinking about and whatever this whole DevOps platform engineering cloud native community is like kind of asking like, so let's assume we can't change the way anyone works or an organization structure or a culture and all we can change are the tools. Like we can introduce new tools. That's fine. But like you can't come up with a new role. It's always going to be the way it is. Then what would we do? Right. And like, you know, a lot, a lot of the, um, uh, uh, I don't know. So some of, some of the, the, the cults and the priests and the, the thought people in the DevOps world would just be like, well, uh, obviously you haven't read the DevOps report. That's just going to fail. Right. And just like <laughs> right off the bat, it's, it's, you know, you just toss that out. But I think in reality, it's like, yeah, but I mean, we've had since 1999 and I'm pretty sure it's not going to change. Right. Like it's always going to be this way. So instead, let's focus on building the tools that make that culture run better instead of dramatically changing things around. And, and, you know, also, uh, I, I used to use these slides, but if you go back to like 2014 or 2015, as you may remember, Brandon, all of the existing fortune 500 are about to crash and burn, uh, because, (laughs) because someone could use JavaScript better than them and and was going to have that secret sauce. But like, lo and behold, I don't think so. Right. Like, especially in, in the bigger gigantiker, if that's a word, industries like, you know, the finance world, like finance companies have, uh, imploded, but it had nothing to do with software. It was just like whole, it was their own industry and and problems that they had. Not that like, you know, there was Robin hood and revolt and all these things. JavaScript did uh, invent mortgage backed securities. Right. Right. And, and, and it's not that those, those big financial organ, those big banks and insurance companies, it's not that they did nothing. But they, in fact, proved that their culture was resilient enough to respond and survive to these existential threats that were out there. Right. And, you know, I mean, for every like for every Circuit City or Blockbuster, there's a J.P. Morgan Chase. Right. That was just like, yeah, let's do this. Right. And it's yeah. like if if you went back and read the uh, uh, at the time, like the annual reports that like Jamie Dimon would put out, like there would be these great paragraphs where he was like, that sounds great. I'm going to bring my 20,000 developers and, and like, apparently it worked out. So like, it's almost like if you look at, when I look at and talk with other large organizations, like increasingly because of a lot of the stuff that we're kind of like alluding to here, like I'm starting to think more and more of like, uh, yeah, like what if I just help them work better at what they're doing <laughs> rather than suggesting they need to like revolutionize the way they think in their organization. You better get HR on board and, and all of this kind of stuff. Cause it seems like there's a lot of improvement that could be just be done. If you just like, you know, run the current version of your software yeah. as, as you were talking well, about. And I think that comes back to like kind of the core thing. I think maybe it, it is like, this is overly simple, but it's sort of like just focus in on automation. Like what are the things that are taking a lot of time? 
let's just find some of those problems and let's just automate them. And we don't have to call it cultural change. We don't have to do anything. I think, you know, go back to that interview with Kelsey. I think he talks about like, hey, let's just work with the network team to make it easy to automatically issue and assign IP right. addresses and not have to do it manually. And like, you know, and, and I think he has a good example. It's like, it's 12 steps now. Could it be six steps next next month or next quarter? Could it be four steps after that, right? And I think, I think there's that. And I also think it is like, I think it is healthy. And I think, you know, I guess Adam Jacobs sort of first out of the box. It's like thinking about the tools. Where can the tools meet where the people are rather than trying to pull the people towards all of these different tools and things like that. And I even think there's, you know, in that same podcast, one of the hosts was talking about how, you know, he said something that like really resonated with me was something until he's like, he's like, I'm just less interested in that part of the stack, like the ops side of it. And I heard mm. you listen to uh, the DHH interview that our friends, uh, uh, Craig and Adam did, you know, DHH talks about like, I love Ruby. He just says it. He's like, I just love it. And it's like, and I think sort of like that emotional response, like, like people do l- like, their minds and uh, personalities and things they like get connected to technologies, right? Like whether it be Ruby and the Python community and the machine learning that people really like that. And it's like, you know, if you want to win those communities over, you got to like meet them where they are to, as much as you can. Yeah. Right? And there may be some limits. So um, giving people lots of new tools and a new process and telling them to like learn all this new stuff, you know, Maybe not the simple, like you're going to, and that's maybe the ceiling we're starting to see. It just only gets you so far. So like, you know, so, so maybe it's Adam's systems initiative. Maybe it's somebody else listening to this podcast. They're starting a new company and it's going to have a different take on it. I hope that's the case. It's like, but maybe there's some, something that unlocks some other value. And of course we can look to the past, uh, Cote, you know, you did some time at, uh, uh, Cloud Foundry and Pivotal Comp- and There were some ideas there. And of course, like this is where we make the Haruku joke, right? Everyone's trying to do that. Um, maybe uh-huh. there will be some attempts, right? Like, you know, we've seen glimpses of it. Uh, it's never really taken off, but like, I, I still think there's hope out there, right? Where it's like, oh, like there is a different way that maybe we could automate a lot of, yeah, yeah. more of this in a different way. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I, th- I think, I think there, there's like, 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 like you're, you're, you're making me think there's, there's, there's some habit here that as a, as a, as a tech community, we're not great at sustaining. Right. And so, and that habit being, well, let's see if I can connect this stuff together. So, you know, I, I think the last, like, like Kelsey talk I saw was he was at like, and I've re- referred this to lots of people, uh, whatever that means, recommended it. He was at like strange loop. And, and, you know, he's a great presenter and he was just like, uh, I heard about this secure software supply chains and there's this thing called salsa that helps you do it. And so like, I went to read that and I mean, this is his kind of style of presentation. So he's like, so let's do it. Right. Like I've got my code here. Cause I like to do that. And I'm just going to go through and like, if I wanted to start making a secure software supply chain, which we've all heard about, like, here's a thing that tells me how to do it. Right. And like, what's great about that presentation is other than it being entertaining is the demystifying a big weird you could almost say like marketing concept marketing is the wrong word but it's like a it's an abstract concept right mm-hmm. yeah. whereas when he walks through it it's like yeah you go to this web page there's four i think I, i'm gonna get it wrong there's four or five levels the first level is you should have a readme file and you're done so i'm gonna add a readme file i'm salsa level one right <laughs> i mean like it's it's a little more complicated than that but like in contrast to a lot of the stuff that we consume and and even, and this is the connection I want to make in contrast to the high level 
hard to put into practice, like culture stuff that you'll encounter in the DevOps world and other places. Like it's basically just saying like, yeah, there's actual stuff you type and do that gets you a secure software supply chain. Now, you know, to, 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 uh, uh, illustrate the abstractness and complexity, there can be all sorts of other stuff to secure software supply chains, right? Or, but, you know, then you could also kind of apply that uh, to go back to tech stuff. It's sort of like there was another, I think, I think in the new stack, someone was writing up that like, uh, it was, it was, uh, was it, is, is it Scott Fulton, the third, very consistent in the, uh, the thirding there, which is always great. I've liked his stuff over the years. I'm not making fun of his name. People can't choose it. Well, I guess they can choose their name, but you know, it's a lot of work. Right. Uh, and like, you know, he was kind of doing a roundup of like, it turns out when the Amazon people are saying they went from serverless to a monolith, that w- isn't really what happened at all. Right. And mm-hmm. he kind of summed it up. Uh, and so, but then he also was alluding to, he like, he interviewed wherever this was, it was either him or someone else. But, you know, you talk to a lot of people and they're like, oh yeah, this is like, you know, we were trying to do all this stuff forever, like in service oriented architecture and SOA stuff. And like, I, I don't know, whatever. And like, I remember SOA stuff. Like you remember me back in this era, like, like maybe you didn't know I was doing this, Brandon, but I would print out various industry WS star specs. Cause I was like, yeah, uh-huh. I was like, there is something in there. And I would put it in three ring binders and I would like take it home and just like read through it. Cause I was like, man, this is great. We're like standardizing as, as someone noted, like a lot of what SOA turned into was standardizing the, the, the data representation in various industries. So I remember reading ones of like, if I'm going to exchange a PO in a supply chain, this is how I'm going to format it. Right. And like, but the underlying technology was fine and it was pretty simple. And so like, what would have been cool there would have been to be like, whoa, this is way too complicated or, or maybe it's actually fine. Like, you still need to represent a PO in a supply chain, right? Like, like all of these things need to exist. But instead, there was just sort of like, uh, you know, well, this is a bunch of bullshit. Let's let's instead just like send stuff over like HTTP based on this this REST re- research report that that uh, or paper that I read. And then you go delve into that, and you're like, oh, I don't think this REST guy wants you to do that with his idea. Like he. He, he's not into that kind of stuff. So anyways, the point being that like you can also like kind of put up service oriented architectures and microservice stuff and be like, what's all this microservice stuff we were doing that seemed to really complexify something that was simple. And, you know, you can imagine another demo where it's like, all right, we're going to implement a microservice and uh, you can do it technically easy. But then back to the cultural thing, it seems like the whole point of a microservice is to decouple the dependency of one of the components in your system from the other components as much as possible. And then that decoupling often goes back to the culture thing where you have a team that owns that microservice and they don't want to be dependent on other uh, services that you have in your large organization. The classic example, probably in a Sam Newman book somewhere, being like a screenshot of Amazon, uh, Amazon book page, and you highlight all these little things that are all their own microservices, right? And then like, you know, there, there's a tell that happens in these technologies and it's happened in the the microservices world and the Kubernetes world where even comically in retrospect, at the time it seemed wise and smart, but, you know, maybe it was a 2015 or 2016 like Martin Fowler thing that was all about microservices and it was like, 
you have to be this high to ride the ride was a picture that I saw in lots of presentations. And it was like, you know, or, you know, in retrospect, the thinking is like, if your cool new tool that's going to be so great is really complicated and hard to use, maybe you should go back to the lab, right? Like, because I don't think you're actually like helping, right? Like instead you could just like make whatever we're currently doing work better. And, yeah. and, and it, it probably does. And, you know, Kubernetes follows in the same thing where like you see every year and, and it's getting a little bit better, but you see every year surveys about like complexity and, and like whatever, blah, blah, blah. And so like that, that seems like an issue, like maybe we should not do that or, or, you know, try to try to, it's, it's a little too late now, but anyhow, I think, I think that's the thing going back to, to DevOps stuff is if you look at, like we were talking about uh, a podcast that uh, disputes books and uh, before we were recording. And one of the, one of the, one of the common things they do in that podcast is uh, they'll point out that when you read these uh, like airport books or the uh, uh, like the atomic habits book, like oftentimes you read it and you're left thinking like, okay, what do I do now? Right? Like what, what do I actually do to put these practices into place? And that's where a lot of, like any sort of like process or culture, like uh, body of thought, like, really starts to struggle at that point. Like, how do I, if I have the Westerum thing like tattooed on my coworker's forehead, because it doesn't make sense to tattoo it on your own forehead, but I have it tattooed up there. Like, what are the tactics that I do to like move myself to the one that isn't a pejorative column, right? Like, how do I get over there? And more importantly, how do I get my 20,000 developers over there? Like, what's the actual plan for moving there? And like, that stuff often is is hard to get a hold of. And instead, I'll have to stop myself mildly ranting here soon. But like, you know, another another thing in, in and again, it's not only just one of these things, but one of the things that I've built up over the years that I'm very cautious of is detecting, there's like a marketing anting pattern I think of uh, kind of related to this as well. But I'm always trying to detect if someone's telling me something, some new idea in the tech world that sounds great, if they're spending a lot of time talking about how my, I forget the philosophy word for this, but how my definitions and categories of things are incorrect, then I'm almost like, I'm not interested in this, right? Like <laughs> if, if what I have to do to improve is reimagine the way that I categorize and think of things, right? That I'm not thinking about the, the state of the machine well, then that means I'm going to have to like tear down the factory and build a new machine, which is just like, uh, very annoying. Like, you know, as, as what well, would be an example of that? Like that was my reaction to all that, like, uh, whatever that, that's Sinwinian chaos complexity theory stuff was like that was, that was my last, like, I don't know if I actually did this, but kind of metaphorically print out a three ring binder of stuff and try to understand what this is. Cause everyone was very obsessed with it. And it was going to help you do things. And Wardley maps were kind of like this too, right? Like it seemed like this magic thought technology, uh, and once you like drew out the map or the territory, or you figured out what category of those four complexities you were in, you were done. Like then you would know what to do. Whereas really, like maybe you just needed to make your your SOA uh, run better, and things yeah. would have been fine. Yeah, I think you kind of get. I mean, just to kind of wrap this whole subject, it's sort of like I just think going forward, and it's and maybe we'll, we can almost like end where we started about the Chat GPT and things like that. Is like. You know, here, machine learning and all this stuff, like, you know, uh, I was joking with Brian Gr- Gracely, I think maybe on one of the podcasts about, 
uh, Amazon and like they used to do these like four hour keynotes about machine learning, about like SageMaker and you like watch it and like, you'd be like, okay. And like, I'd sort of like half get it. And then after the keynote, I'd be like, I just never think about it again. Right. Whereas, you know, someone throws out chat GPT and it's just like, yeah, just start, start typing questions to start at prompt. And it's like, all this stuff starts happening. And I think that's like a good metaphor to think about. Like, you know, maybe not everything can just be a text box. Right. But at the same time, if it's so complicated, I have to reconceptualize everything, the organization, the way I think about things and how to do it. It's like, that's also probably a, an indication like you're off in the wrong part of the world. Right. Or you have a huge effort to go change. And I think, and that's maybe, you know, we'll leave it on, you know, second, whether it's second wave of DevOps or as Kelsey Hightower and some of the other people retire, like, you know, what's the next thing to kind of replace it. And hopefully, you know, that'll be some of the thinking that goes into either evolving what we have now or like rethinking the next thing. Right. It's like, let's just make this a lot more approachable and like, let's just keep the benefits. I just go back to that automation more tangible and we may see a lot more people get involved than are today. So uh, that's yeah, the way yeah. I think of it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I think you just need like uh like you, you, th- you think about like the the other big successful thing in in all of this, which is like you know containers, which is to say Docker, right? And a huge, I mean, other than the thing itself, like the huge thing that drove its success was just like you could just do it, right? Like yeah. it was easy to understand and explain, and it was uh, very possible. Versus versus other gigantic, big, uh, big important things. And again, it, like DevOps doesn't really fit into this category, but just like you know. There, there was, there was no Docker the hard way. There was just like Docker the way. Well, it's even better, right? It still exists today. It was just like, oh, like you need, you want to do this thing, and you need like a little a server that has it already done for you. Like, just download this thing. Just go get this image and just run this command. And you know, I use that every. I'm not every day, but I use that quite a bit. And it's like, that's a really good example, right? Of just sort of like, yeah, that's just like you can use it for like a million different reasons, all the yeah. way from like production development all the way to like, I'll just keep my Mac clean. I can just finally have a version of Python that I know what's there. I don't have to like mess around with like updating Python on my machine. So that's, that's a good way to think. And, of it. And I'll, I'll just add one more thing. Like, so I've, I've been, you know, uh, I'm, I'm always interested in what, what my old pal, Andrew Schaefer, Andrew Clay Schaefer is up to, and he's all into the social technical systems and things like that. And that's a whole other, like, like, uh, uh, exciting trough of, all sorts of complex stuff, depending on what, what you try to, to read there. But as I've been reading through it, like the thing that I've also realized is like, I think I've mentioned this before, but you know, there's all, when you explore the history of social technical systems, like it starts, I don't know, in the fifties or something. And it's basically the study of how humans and, and technologies are used with each other and interact with each other. I, I, I don't know if they would put it this way, but in my mind to become one system basically. Right. And then you add in like, policy and norms and stuff and you basically like if you think about that as a system and all the parts interact and have an equal equals the wrong word they have they have an effect on each other right so uh which is i think a lot different than like you know tools aren't important culture is important it's saying all of these things are important but what i find interesting there is that like or, or what happened in mind that was interesting there is I was reading all these things that are about like, you know, coal miners and man, and manufacturers. And I kept waiting to be like, yeah, but software and computers are different. And like the way we do stuff is different. Then I realized like, well, yeah. And then also if you think about all the lean manufacturing stuff, like 
like a factory is kind of the worst metaphor for software because it warps the way you think about software to be this repeatable process that's highly automatable instead of like the weird nature that software is. But anyways, it did make me realize that like when you get to the culture and the person side of stuff, like there's not really that anything unique about the way software is done. So in the same way that like you could see that these uh, these self-organizing coal miners in, in somewhere in England or whatever in the 50s, they actually operated better uh, because they could determine what to, you just told them what you wanted done and they would do it with the tools that they had. And that had great results in the same way that like in lean manufacturing, like whoever is closest to actually making the product or doing the thing that runs the business, they're the best position to make decisions about how to do it versus someone else. Uh, and on and on and on, right? Like, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, what we should do is maybe just discover these universal principles of how things run and maybe do that and also have better tools, <laughs> right? <laughs> instead of instead of having to come up with these like big, weird, uh, different systems. I don't know. But there's something interesting scurrying around there. People should just get better at, at uh, doing tools. Speaking of, as, as, as one last thing to reference, uh, I, th I think there's an interesting... Uh, I forget if this is a coda or a footnote, but uh, the Stack Overflow developer survey uh, came out. And uh, if you look at it, and and if you, as I'm sure everyone here does, they, if they follow my alma mater of uh, of Redmonk, basically, uh, if you look at the top programming language this year in the, the Stack Overflow developer survey, and you throw out SQL, not a programming language, you can send email to I'm not going to read it dot com uh, and and bash and, and and scripting also not a programming language. And then as much as I hate to admit it, HTML and CSS, where I figure like, you know, I did a lot. there, not a programming language. And then if you combine this is a lot of if what you what you're left with is uh, JavaScript, TypeScript, Python and, and Java. And uh, I didn't know what TypeScript was. And I went and read it and it was a super set of JavaScript. So I'm just going to call that JavaScript, you know, whatever. Uh, yeah, I mean, I don't think much has changed over the past 15 years <laughs> in summary. And so like you have uh you've got these same like like tools sticking there. And I, I was I was thinking about, you know, we've got our Spring 1 conference coming up and like Spring's been around for 20 years. It seems fine, right? Like so you do have you have these other technologies that like just keep getting incrementally improved and stabilized and worked on and uh Meanwhile, all these other programming, I, you know, TypeScript can be an exception here, but these these things that like are like revolutionizing the way things are working, they uh, they don't they don't always like bubble up too much. But you've got these good things, which I think, and and I think the reason that they're up there is because again, they keep evolving and they keep things keep being added to them and they keep getting better and uh, better instead of and just, just add on there and like people want to use them. Right. I mean, that's the biggest thing. Like that's the, you know, people are drawn to those tools. So, I mean, it is what it is at some point, right? Maybe you don't like that, but that's, that's sort of where, where people want to be. Yeah. Well, speaking of things that people want to use, Brandon, if people wanted to get stickers, how, how could they get stickers? Well, first I want to thank Dennis for emailing in. And what he did was he sent his postal address to uh, soft stickers at softwaredefinedtalk.com. And uh, I sent him a sticker in the UK. But if you want a sticker, just send your postal address uh, and I will send you one anywhere in the world. Also, we had a bunch of stuff. It's been a couple of weeks since we recorded. So I wanted to uh, throw out a few other things from, from the, the crowd, if you will. First, uh, big thanks to uh, Craig and Adam for interviewing uh, DHH. So hopefully people enjoyed that episode. If you want to stay up to date on what they're doing, 
you should subscribe to Credbox's newsletter. It's uh, let's see, what is it called here? It's called Let's Get to the News. It's on Substack, so I'll have a link there. Um, they're always up to something interesting, so check them out. Also, uh, wanted to recognize Doug. Doug actually wrote up a blog post. We talked a few weeks ago, Cote, about you know getting access to data and databases and how hard that can be. So he wrote a blog post called uh, "When You Don't Have a Seat at the Table." Uh, so it's good. So any if you want to like uh, get a shout out, like take something we've talked about and write a blog post. Almost, you know, we love that, right? Like so, everyone should uh, check that one out. Of course, uh, I was recently on the Cloudcast. So if you haven't heard enough of me talking this week. Go uh, listen to the Cloudcast. It was a fun episode. The mid-year review episode. Myself and Brian, I think we had plenty of hot takes. And then uh, finally, just sort of a, a community uh, media recommendation here. Uh, I've already recommended this, but I just wanted to like pile on and just say, so people in the TV channel of the Software Defined Talk Slack, most people said they really enjoyed Silo. I loved Silo, mm-hmm. of course. And I've read the books, which I've recommended on here at least multiple times. So if you're looking for something to check out, uh, go to uh, Apple TV and you can watch Silo. So always appreciate all the feedback from the community. It's always fun to hear what everyone's doing. So uh, keep it coming. Well, there's there's several conferences coming up. On, uh, on August 8th, you can meet Matt Ray at the Kubernetes Community Day in Australia. I don't know what city it's in, you know, just go somewhere in Australia and you can just kind of walk down the street just, and get to wherever. Just maybe. the country. All right. We'll have to find that. Yeah, it's, it's probably somewhere. It might be smack dab in the middle. Who knows? <laughs> and then uh, as, as I was alluding to earlier, uh, August 21st to 24th is going to be uh, spring one and VMware Explore in, uh, in Las Vegas. Uh, and the uh, I think I, I'm not sure if the the CFP for our, our European one is uh, open still. I think that closed on the 24th, but whatever. And then I'll actually be, speaking of DevOps, I'll be at DevOps Days Des Moines in uh, September 6th to 7th. They invited me to give uh, a keynote there, uh, which will be nice. And then there's, uh, let's see, on October 6th, there'll be uh, KCD Texas 2023. Their CFP is still open. That closes uh, August 30th. Uh, and that should be nice. That's the kind of one I would probably go to if I was still uh, back in Texas. And speaking of Texas, on January 29th uh, to February 1st, there'll be that conference in Texas. It's like the the fourth or so year, I think, that they're they're there, if I remember. And, uh, you know, if you're interested in, in more conferences and events, I, I don't actually list all of them that I, that I do here. But there's if you go to my newsletter at newsletter.cote.com, one, you should subscribe to it because there's all sorts of great stuff there. I know because I write it. Uh, and, and therefore it's fantastic. Uh, but if you go to newsletter.cote.com and subscribe to it, I try to put uh, every episode, like little things, uh, conferences and stuff like that, that I'll be up to as well. Maybe not ones I won't be, but you can find more there uh, as well. And with that, Brandon, what do you have to recommend this week? All right. Uh, this week, I think kind of continuing our conversation here about like just what it takes to to make changes. I'm just going to recommend you listen to one of these podcast episodes. One is uh, by the, our, uh, people at Odd Lots, and one is by Ezra Klein. And they're both interviews with, uh, I think it's called Jennifer Polika. I don't know if that's exactly how I say it. But anyway, her background is she basically worked in the government and implementing technology in the government. And it's pretty, and she's written a book. So of course she was making uh, the the tour of the podcast to sell her book. But I think either one of these episodes, you know, just pick one that you like or the interviewer you like. I thought it was really insightful uh, just listening to her talk about what it takes to build software inside the government and the various incentives and the various stakeholders and why it's Mm -hmm. so difficult, if you will. Like we talk about it all the time on the show. Like why is it 
take uh, the IRS, for example, $80 billion and how hard it is to do that. And I think it's a pretty eye-opening. So I bet you many of us work in maybe organizations that we think are challenged in some way, but listening to this is a little bit of therapy, like, wow, like you think you have it hard. Like, like I was like content management, you think it's hard to update the website at your company. Imagine updating the website at, um, you know, any of the United States governments, not yeah. simple. So let, um, let alone well, updating the tax code as represented yeah, in mean, business rules that, that spread across mainframes and yeah, it's web fascinating. logic. I mean, it's sphere. fascinating and only an enterprise software person uh, can, can enjoy. And also too, I just going to pile on here. There are so many things in your newsletter this week, Kote, that I really like, but one caught my eye and it's this, uh, Tony, uh, uh, Hayish, I don't know how to say his name. Anyway, he was the CEO, fairly famous of Zappos, and you know, kind of sadly uh, passed away. I don't know a few years ago, but this is a pretty good article, like kind of like taking a fresh look at kind of like the way people evaluated him at the height of his success, and then kind of looking back at what happened. And it's 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 it's, uh, it's not a happy story, I guess. I should let me say that it's not necessarily super uplifting, but I, I don't know. I think it's it's important to like go back and look at this. Some of these. Uh, these things that we think about at the time. In fact, we were talking about uh, specifically one of the podcasts. Maybe you should recommend that that uh, podcast, Kote, about like looking at airport books. I was even before the show talking about how I liked, uh, I'll just say it on there. I like this show. I like the book Freakonomics, but now I've read all these criticisms and I heard this podcast and I feel bad about liking the book. So, but it's good though. I like when people kind of bring something fresh to it. Like I didn't get it on the first try and they show it. So, and I think this article does a really good job at maybe you know, kind of, if you will, deconstructing some of the tech mogul myth that we kind of fall into traps with. So I don't know. It's, you know, it's holiday week here in the United States. So I give you plenty of content to, to listen to at, by the pool when you're tired of uh, uh, having drinks and uh, swimming, you know, you've got something to, to chew on. So check all of that stuff out. All the links are in the show notes. Well, I, th- I think so. First of all, for my recommendations, I'll, I'll, I'll take the bait of the, uh, I've mentioned this podcast, but if we, if we had been recording, uh, before the show, I think we would have had the, I, I've, I've long said that we should have a, uh, you know, a podcast where we critique other podcasts, you know, like we, we listen to a lot of podcasts. We know them well. There's, we could talk about, you know, multiple years of listening to certain podcasts and just do a, a, a kind of a, a critique in the, the academic sense of we don't, we're not being mean about it, but just like, what are our thoughts? And I think, one that we discussed quite a bit before recording was what Brandon's alluded to called uh, this podcast, If Books Could Kill. And their their pedigree comes from, uh, I, I never remember, it's Michael Hobbs is his name. He comes from the uh, You're Wrong About podcast. So it's in a predictable vein of podcastery where uh, they go back and, and for example, they re- the, however many decades later they review the Freakonomics book or The World is Flat or the Bobos in Paradise. And there's some, uh, uh, what would you call it? shooting fish in a barrel ducks in a barrel ones like you know that uh that pickup artist book so there's some that are just like you're just there to see them like you know light something on fire but it's uh it's i don't listen to it all the time but it is it's good uh it's good to see someone structurally take apart something and to brandon's point like review uh books that previously were thought to be insightful and a big deal and uh anyways it's, it can be fun if you're into that kind of thing. My my other, my main recommendation, very small recommendation, but the other day I was thinking like, I'm always wanting to check out before I do a podcast or whatever. I want to adjust the lighting in my video. And like, I've always got to like open up QuickTime and then you've got to like make a new video. And this this seems ridiculous. So I was like, surely there's an application that does, does this. And lo and behold, there are several, uh, I think, but I found one in Setup 
which I subscribe to, you could buy it independently called Hand Mirror. And all it does is it, I mean, it does a little bit more than this, but it basically you click on it and it opens up a window that shows you how you look on your webcam. And that's about it. And so like, it's nice because it's a lot faster than opening QuickTime and, and dismissing that start a new file thing and then going up and doing a new movie and whatever. It's just instantly there. And, you know, you don't have to start Zoom or look at anything, but it's good just to like, uh, and you can do various types of settings so that you can, you can do it differently. But really, it just shows you what your webcam is going to look like, which I think, uh, I think I needed that. So Hand Mirror, just search for that, the Hand Mirror app, or you could go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 422 and scroll down to the recommendations and click on the links. Brandon mentioned a lot of them. So you don't, uh, hopefully if you were writing that down and Googling it, uh, you, you weren't doing that because you can just go to softwaredefinedtalk.com slash 422 and find links to things we talked about, a whole bunch of things we didn't talk about. And as always, uh, there's also the Slack channel, which you can go to by going to that same URL, softwaredefinedtalk.com. And we have all sorts of discussions going on in the Slack channel, not only about stuff we talk about here, uh, but just uh, other things. Mostly it's tech stuff, but there's a thriving discussion there. So if you uh, if you uh, uh, want some of that, go go check it out. And with that, we'll see everyone next time. Bye-bye. Uh, yes, Matt, Matt rolled a one on setting the alarm. The phone caught on fire. What was I going to talk about? Oh, who knows?